If Charles Lee was alive today, he would be considered a master networker. That guy knew everybody. As we've seen in prior episodes, Charles was pals with a few kings and kings-in-waiting, like Stanislaus of Poland, Frederick I of Prussia, and his son, future King Frederick Wilhelm, as well as Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II. He wasn't a fan of King George III, but still managed to get a meeting with him. Like any modern-day Wall Street capitalist on the make, Charles Lee could always get the meeting. And each of these connections led to more connections. In the hierarchical world of the late 18th century, who you knew was at least as important as what you could do. A bold fellow with no shame could open a lot of doors for himself, like another of our favorite train wrecks, Aaron Burr, who was, like Charles Lee, not a fellow to turn down an invitation to a duel. Charles and his little dog Spotto continued their meet and greet of colonial movers and shakers once they got to America in 1773. Within less than two years, Charles met with future revolutionary leaders Benjamin Rush, Ben Franklin's son-in-law Richard Bash, Horatio Gates, another British-born soldier who had his eye on George Washington's job, but we'll get to him soon enough, future General Light Horse Harry Lee, no relation, maybe, Yale President Ezra Stiles, Samuel Adams and his cousin John, and he even had dinner with George Washington at Mount Vernon where his dog pack, now numbering 11 badly behaved fellows, annoyed Martha to no end. Charles packed up his dogs and left after borrowing 15 bucks from his future commander-in-chief. He was also in correspondence with the philosopher Edmund Burke, who had witnessed Ben Franklin's public humiliation at the hands of the King's Solicitor General in a room Henry VIII once used for cockfights. For details on this, see our episodes 42 and 44, Ben Franklin in the Cockpit. While in Boston, Charles sent a friendly but not too friendly letter to his old comrade-in-arms, British Commanding General of North America, Thomas Gage, but never got a reply. Our accomplished little networker did all this in a year and a half. Like few of his contemporaries, Charles traveled throughout the colonies, stopping in Virginia, Pennsylvania, New York, Massachusetts, and all the ones in between. This gave him a much broader perspective of the approaching conflict, which turned him into a radical proponent of hostilities with Britain. And unlike many of the worrywarts in the brand new Continental Congress, Charles was convinced the Americans could win. He laid out his political and military ideas in a series of pamphlets. In an essay called To the Citizens of Philadelphia, he argued against being reasonable, which sounds just like him. Moderation, moderate men, and moderate measures are the spells which are to charm us into a destructive supineness. Writing under the pseudonym Anglis Americanus, he told the colonists to hit the crown where it hurt, in the money belt. He proposed non-importation of British goods and non-exportation of colonial goods back to the mother country, because that trade was the whole point of having colonies in the first place. The First Continental Congress later adopted this strategy. In another publication, he challenged Americans to act decisively to protect their liberties, for in so doing, they would inspire others living under oppression to fight for their freedom. Like common sense author Thomas Paine, Charles saw America as what he called the last asylum of liberty, fortunately situated with an ocean between itself and its oppressors. Adding his military know-how to the philosophical mix, he said that the British, forced to fight thousands of miles from home, could be beaten. Future Yale President Ezra Stiles said, he is a European but talks high for American liberty and seems to endeavor to inspirit the people to take arms. Before Thomas Paine wrote a word of common sense, 
before George Washington put on his uniform to go to Philadelphia, Charles Lee combined radical patriotism and military experience. In this, he was much more like the world's future revolutionaries than calm, reasonable, non-radical, militarily inexperienced George Washington, who, less than six months before the first shots were fired at Lexington and Concord, said he would recommend Charles to a military position if the need arose. Even at this late date, Washington was disposed to reconciliation with Britain, calling the Boston Tea Party a terrible idea. His house guest and moocher, Charles Lee, was ready to sever all ties with the mother country and go to war. As he had written before his trip to Mount Vernon, Americans should be determined to sacrifice everything, their property, their wives, children, and blood, rather than cede a tittle of what they conceived to be their rights. Charles met with Washington again in April 1775, right before Lexington and Concord, and argued for a guerrilla war against the British regulars. Charles envisioned a war of mass resistance and wanted the colonial militias, which Washington disdained, to be the core of American strategy. Washington preferred a regular army of full-time troops. Don't worry, this would not be their last disagreement. And there's no mention in the historical record of whether Charles ever repaid the 15 pounds he had borrowed from George that one time. Charles's radical writings had gotten back to his old pals in England, and they started to worry about him far more than they did about a bunch of colonial rabble-rousers. The British Secretary of State for the Colonies, Lord Dartmouth, advised General Gage to take every legal method to prevent his, Charles, continuing these practices. The London General Evening Post described Lee's motives as self-interested and warned Chief Minister Frederick Lord North to take care that Lee does not prove a second Coriolanus, a reference to a 5th century BC Roman general who had been exiled from the city and then came back at the head of an army to conquer it. As the American Revolution started to pick up steam, the British government was far more worried about Charles Lee than it was about George Washington, who they had as of yet never heard of. Conservative and moderates in the colonies were suspicious as well. A certain wandering being has just made his appearance, wrote the Virginia Gazette. Nature has not given him a face to belie his heart. He has a sour, restless, discontented countenance and is an ever-constant attendant of the demon of discord. Wow, Virginia Gazette, low blow. James Rivington, publisher of the New York Gazetteer, described Charles as a vulgar, vain, and ambitious person who displayed a superficial knowledge of various subjects, thrived on creating factions, and had done nothing distinguishable as an officer in the British Army. Wow, New York Gazetteer, low blow. But certain valid points were being made. The American Revolution, unlike the later French Revolution, wasn't a hotbed of radical lunatics who wanted the king's head in a basket and saw every citizen as either lined up to support the cause or lined up to be decapitated in public. There were quite a lot of colonists on the side of England. Ratcheting up the fiery rhetoric of independence and war wasn't going to help win hearts and minds. As the Second Continental Congress got underway, cooler heads prevailed, with John Adams gradually taking the stage away from his firebrand cousin Sam and Washington emerging as the best candidate to command the army. There was quite a lot of political calculation going on in Philadelphia in late spring of 1775, but the question of who should command the Continental Army was not a trivial matter. The Congress knew the leader of the Continentals had to be a politician as well as a general, and whoever it was would become the singular figurehead of the entire struggle. But at the same time, the army needed to actually win battles. 
I have never in all my lifetime suffered more anxiety than in the conduct of this business, John Adams said. He had Washington in mind from the start, but Charles Lee, that consummate networker, was aggressively lobbying for the job. He had the resume and the patriotic spirit, as well as, of course, quite a lot of allies in the Congress from his relentless networking and schmoozing. But one thought weighing heavily on the delegates was that they were very likely appointing the future leader of their country and handing him an army. In the end, they concluded that Washington could be trusted with the power that would be bestowed upon him. With the unspoken notion that the other major contender for the job, radical, mercurial, cranky dog wrangler Charles Lee, could not. But General Lee was most strenuously urged by many to serve cheerfully under Washington, John Adams recalled. Thomas Mifflin of Pennsylvania, one of Lee's many fans, insisted that Lee must be aut secundus aut nullus, second in command, or nothing. In short, we have our figurehead general and dignified leader of the revolution in the field, but we want to make sure someone will give the British a weapon. Charles tended to make a great first impression, but wore out his welcome over time, like when he and his dogs rampaged through Mount Vernon. Many delegates found his acerbic and contentious nature, perpetually unkempt appearance, and profanity-laced conversations troubling. And there was the fact that he had been born in England and served in the British Army. The delegates didn't think the colonists would warm to a foreign-born general who had fought on the side of the enemy not too long ago and was, technically, still in their army. And maybe, hard as it is to believe, they didn't like dogs. There were some delegates who didn't think Charles should be granted any commission at all. Samuel Adams, a radical kindred spirit of Charles Lee's, was confused by all the hesitation. Why should any of our friends hesitate about the propriety of giving a command to General Lee? Sam asked, with particular emphasis directed toward his crabby cousin John, who was now in effective civilian control of the army. He might not have been born an American, but he has heartily espoused the cause of America and abhors the oppressive measures of the British government against America. Sam said, we need a radical in the service. John focused on Lee's military experience and the credibility it would bring to the army. The British, as we have seen, took Charles far more seriously than Washington, and John Adams believed that Lee's vast European connections would help with the whole getting foreign allies to support the cause thing, which Adams knew even this early on would make or break the cause of independence. So both Adams' boys, those adorable pains in the ass, were now on board with giving General Lee a commission. But what ultimately sealed the deal was that George Washington, quite possibly eager to get rid of his houseguest and that pack of dogs that was making Martha mad, had promised to recommend Charles for a position in the army that time Charles had mooched off of him at Mount Vernon. Politics intervened once again. With a Virginian in overall command, New England needed a bone thrown their way, so Artemis Ward of Massachusetts was made second in command. The vote to commission Charles Lee as a major general was described by John Adams as a scuffle, with dismal bugbears being raised, but the need for experienced officers winning out. Samuel Adams wrote, I am more and more satisfied in the appointment of General Lee. He is certainly an able officer, and I think deeply embarked in the American cause. Other delegates like Benjamin Rush came down to the judgment of Charles Lee that was shared by most. They could overlook Charles's oddities and focus on his military experience. John Adams said Charles was a queer creature, but was willing to accept his oddity, there's that word again, 
and forgive a thousand whims for the sake of the soldier and the scholar. George Washington was willing to overlook the flaws in his personality because of his extensive military knowledge and the combat experience that he brought to his staff. These are not what you'd call rigging endorsements. In addition to knowing all the right people, a leader in the 18th century also needed to be seen as dignified, disinterested in ambition, and humble. In another time and place, Charles Lee would have been first choice and possibly the only one. Despite his undeniable ability to make connections and get in front of the movers and shakers of his time, like most train wrecks we have covered, he was absolutely no good at reading the room and found it impossible to tone down his less appealing attributes for the sake of his goals. Like the discussion he had with Congress right after getting a commission by the skin of his teeth about how much he was going to get paid for his service. Charles pointed out that his colonial property, which he valued at 11,000 pounds, a thousand for each dog, I imagine, would be at risk of destruction by the British in the war. The Congress agreed to his salary and to compensate him for any losses during his service. This was in marked contrast to the refusal of George Washington to accept any pay or get this and any future Congress to pay him back if the British destroyed his property, like Charles did. Later in the war, when the British anchored a ship in the river near Mount Vernon, Washington's manager, third cousin Lund Washington, plied the British with gifts to spare the plantation. George was incensed when he heard about it. He told his cousin, it would have been a less painful circumstance to me if they had burnt my house and laid the plantation in ruins. Big difference. Charles Lee officially resigned his commission in the British Army. In a letter to Lord Barrington, British Secretary of War, Charles renounced the half pay he had been on and said, I think myself obliged in conscience as a citizen, Englishman, and soldier of a free state to exert my utmost to defeat the Crown's policies that were so absolutely subversive of the rights and liberties of every individual. That same night, the newly minted generals of the Continental Army met for dinner to talk about reports of a battle outside Boston that was referred to as Bunker Hill. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show on our Patreon page. There's lots of fun bonus content over there, like how to talk to your pets about history, early access to new episodes, and some incidents where fans of the show take me to task about train wrecks I haven't talked about, and some that I have. It's also a great way to keep the show going. $3 a month or so goes a long way toward keeping the train wrecks on the tracks, and your support means a lot. Go to patreon.com forward slash histories train wrecks, and thank you so much. If you have your own ideas about 18th century networking practices, or how many dogs is too many, you can Twitter to add histories train. You can Instagram, whatever that is, to histories train wrecks. If there's a historical train wreck you'd love to see on the tracks, join the histories train wrecks Facebook group. And as always, tell every history nerd you know about us. We definitely need to stick together. On our next episode, Generals Washington and Lee travel to Boston to take command of the Continental Army, where their different ideas about military philosophy, troop training, war strategy, and quite possibly what to do with your dogs while on campaign start to become a problem. Stay tuned for The Men Who Would Be Washington, Part 4. Hello, great minds! Mr. DGMH here, but wait, what the hell is DGMH? 
DGMH, or Drinks with Great Minds in History, is a weekly podcast that covers one of history's greatest minds each month. While we enjoy review and rate themed cocktails, liquors, and beers on the scale of greatness. As greats like Alexander Hamilton square off against George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and more, DGMH is the perfect cocktail of history, sarcasm, and alcohol, with a twist of psych and a bunch of shots along the way. So grab yourself a drink with some great minds in history. Cheers! Cheers!